Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. My name is Roger Hudson. And I'm Monica Molinera. And today we're joined by Maria Gonchev, a uh, postdoctoral associate here at Western University in the Microbiology and Immunology Department. How are you doing, Maria? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very well, thanks. Uh, so, uh, immunology and uh, microbiology, you have a specific niche area of, of interest, obviously, but what brought you here to Western and, and what got you into the, the basic scienti- uh, sciences to begin with? Uh, that's a great question, actually. So, um, I was nearing finishing my PhD and I was job hunting, just like, you know, all of us do. <laughs> um, and I saw an advert from my current boss um, who was looking for a postdoc at the time. Um, and I'd read a lot of his research and he was doing some really fascinating stuff. So, you know, I chanced it and sent him an email being like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm finishing my PhD. I hear you're looking for someone and here's my CV and, you know, take it from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then got an email back within like two hours, which was shocking to me. Wow. Um, and, you know, we had a couple of Skype chats and um, he then just offered me the job. Um, so it was a bit of a chance. Um, but I knew what he was doing and I wanted to learn some of the stuff that he was doing. So it was a great opportunity and I wasn't against moving at the time. Uh, and Canada was one of the few places I actually was quite keen to move to. Hmm. So it was a win-win situation at the time. So backing up a little bit, where did you do your PhD, your graduate school work, but before you moved here to Canada? So I did my PhD at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Okay. Uh, where I also did my undergraduate degree. So I finished my undergrad and then stayed for a PhD um, afterwards um, and then realized that I need to find a job uh, at the end <laughs> of the PhD. Um, <laughs> always a startling um, and not fun realization. Um, so, you know, you can get a postdoc pretty much anywhere in the world and everyone has a preference of where they do or don't want to go. So um, I wanted to move, try something different. And Canada was a great place. And, you know, it, I then got a job offer. So I was like, well, you know, it's a place I want to go and it's someone I want to work for. So, yeah, why not? Wow. Was your PhD research directly in relation to what you're currently doing for your postdoc? Like, what were you doing for your PhD? Uh, part of it. So my PhD was on co-infection between influenza A virus and Staphylococcus aureus. Um, and at the moment, I work on Staph aureus. So part of my PhD training was very much in relation to it, yes. Um, although not all of it. Okay. So just to dumb it down a little bit then, mm-hmm. influenza A? Yeah. And the flu and uh, like staph infections. Yeah, (laughs) which is actually pretty common. Um, So most people get flu. I mean, obviously, pretty much everyone gets the flu. We all know what it is. Um, But by far and large, it's, um, you know, it resolves itself. It's not a big deal. You're sick for a few days, but it's not that much of a problem. Uh, The biggest problem actually is when um, your immune system's compromised and then you get second bacterial infections. Um, which hmm. essentially floor your immune system, and then it's really, really difficult to deal with it. Um, and Staph aureus is actually the most common uh, pathogen that people get after flu. Um, so there's a lot of uh, clinical association between the two, and we don't really know anything that goes on. Wow. Um, so it, it's, I mean, the field of research has been expanding um, quite a lot recently, but it's a big complication for flu patients. Okay. So why is that? Why is the staph uh, virus? It's a virus or bacteria? It's a bacterium. So why is the staph bacteria, why is it so commonly associated with post-flu infections? We don't know. I mean, we know some of it. We don't know most <laughs> of it. Part of it is because we all have it. So about a third of us um, have staph um, that 
colonizes us. It normally lives in the nose. You don't know it's there. It doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it just is. And it exists. Uh, but then when your uh, respiratory system, when your lungs are compromised from the flu, it's very easy for the bacteria to then just travel down the back of your nose and end up in your lungs. And there's no immune system to fight it because it's focused on the virus. There's a lot of... Um, other things going on, um, which basically make it a nicer home for the bacteria. So they go with, okay, this is great. I'm going to start replicating now and wreak some havoc. Just the perfect uh, storm, as it they say. Pretty much is, actually, yes. <laughs> okay, so how does that relate to your current research then? So some of it relates to my current research. So I still work on Staph aureus, um, although I now work on a slightly different part of it. Um, so the interesting part about staff, um, and I'm sorry, I keep calling it staff. It's the abbreviation we use in the lab just because nobody actually calls it Staphylococcus aureus um, on a daily basis. Um, it's <laughs> just sense. too long. So staph can actually cause a lot of very different infections. So it can cause pneumonia both on its own and after flu. You can have sepsis. You can have infections of the heart, infections of the bone, which are all caused by the same bacterium. And by far and large, we don't know why they're different. Um, So now I study a lot more um, how staph causes sepsis, which is systemic infection. Basically, you have bacteria in your blood um, and you are in, you know, some very serious trouble and you're probably more than likely in the hospital and need antibiotic treatment. Um, And I'm looking into how um, the bacteria cause disease, but also what are the, um, the ways that what are the things that the bacteria need to cause disease? So, you know, they all need to grow. They all need to get their food, just like we do. It's just their food is very slightly different. Um, so at the moment, we're looking into a specific food group as such uh, and how the bacteria make that or acquire that and how that links to their ability to cause disease. Because we're hoping, and by us, I mean the scientific field, that we can start finding alternative treatments to antibiotics or at least treatments that can be used in conjunction with antibiotics. And this is because of the overuse of antibiotics leading to the resistance. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, that's that's exactly the case. So um, Staph aureus has a version called uh, multidrug resistant Staph aureus or MRSA, okay. which pretty much most people have seen, at least, you know, in titles. And it's the super bugs. Um, and there are cases of MRSA being resistant to all antibiotics, um, at which point it becomes, you know, untreatable. Um, so we're trying to find ways to either um, help current antibiotics and find other treatments um, or develop new antibiotics or both so that we can, you know, target these multidrug resistant strains. Wow. So you specifically look at the MRSA version of the Staphylococcus aureus. Uh, yes. We work predominantly with MRSA. So I guess w- w- maybe this is a little bit outside of your of your range or your scope of your project, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just thinking if, if there is a strain or a variety of this MRSA that gets completely resistant to all treatments, what's stopping it from getting passed on throughout the whole, uh, you know, civilization and I guess just taking us all out? Um, that's a great question. It's <laughs> almost like we're playing pandemic here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, there are strains like that. Uh, we call them uh, VRSA or vancomycin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Okay. Um, so vancomycin is the an- is an antibiotic, um, and it's the essentially the last line of treatment. Um, so if you have MRSA, it's resistant to everything else. You treat it with vancomycin. If it's resistant to vancomycin. Uh, it's really, really bad. Mm -hmm. And some people, quite a few people these days actually have died from VRSA infections um, because they just don't respond to treatment. Um, What's stopping it from taking over? Um, I don't know. Um, Part of it is because being resistant to antibiotics actually costs you a lot. 
So, you know, you need to make additional proteins to resist. Uh, you need okay. more energy. Uh, there is a cost in the way the bacteria live in order for them to be able to be resistant to antibiotics. And sometimes that cost is that they're less able to cause disease. Okay. It's, I mean, that's in the perfect world. We hope that, you know, <laughs> you've, you've acquired 10 extra genes for these 10 extra antibiotics but you have the same amount of energy. So maybe you're making less of the nasty stuff. Uh, it's not always the case, okay. um, obviously. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, thankfully, there is the VRSA cases are still rare. It doesn't happen very often. Sure. There is at least some antibiotic out there, even if it's an old one or one that you didn't think of that you can use, but it is spreading. So VRSA is, the rates are increasing exponentially. Um, so it will be a very big problem very soon. Unfortunately, hence wow. why we're trying to, you know, think of something different if we can. Wow. So, so is there something, I guess, special about the MRSA or about some of these drug resistant bacteria that uh, the food that they eat or you mentioned the mm-hmm. um, genes that they now are, are able or they've acquired the ability to express? I guess they've adapted or evolved or I guess we're contributing to their evolution. Uh, but w- is there something special about what they eat or, or what, what is your line of research specifically look at there? So... Um all bacteria need to acquire nutrients that you know they're living things they replicate they need their food to replicate and survive and they by far and large they need to replicate to cause disease so it's a clear correlation between acquisition of food them growing and them causing disease and there are different food groups that you know different bacteria will need um but that's you know a lot of nitty-gritty stuff that most people don't care about um but then the the thing that scientists are currently trying to do a lot of microbiologists are trying to do is targeting the main things you know the things that all bacteria need so that hopefully if you find something you can work on more than one thing um the things that we're currently looking at is um actually dna um so bacteria in order to replicate need to make new dna um to make themselves grow um and we're currently looking at a pathway which um synthesizes or makes the building blocks of dna so without that pathway the bacteria need to get it from somewhere else sure or they don't replicate Mm. um so we're hoping that we can eventually probably quite a bit further down the line find a way to target that pathway at the moment, we're trying to study what it does and how it contributes to disease so mm. that we can later on target those steps. Wow. So how do you go about actually doing that? In a variety of different ways, but the most common one is, um, and this is going to sound super sci-fi, but we make mutants. So what we do <laughs> is we have the ability to delete individual genes in the genome of the bacteria. Uh, it's long and labor intensive, but we can do it. So then we can take these, what we call mutants, that are lacking specific genes and see how they behave compared to their parents um, and then attribute the specific feature. So, for example, they can grow in this food, but not that one, whereas their parent can grow in both. Therefore, maybe they, they specifically need that one ingredient in order to be able to survive or they need this gene for the acquisition of that ingredient. Um, that's predominantly what we do uh, in in various different ways. And we often study groups of genes together um, and how they contribute in, in various backgrounds. Um, and then we have a lot of um, disease models as well. So um, we put these bacteria onto cells and see how they replicate there and uh, how that can be um, a factor in how they cause disease. Okay. 
I don't even know where to start. <laughs> so many different questions. So are there particular genes that you're looking at currently? Uh, yes. Yeah. So our current focus is the genes that synthesize DNA, or at least one of the four types of um, molecules needed for DNA. Um, and there is a pathway of, I want to say, 10 or 11 genes um, and their repressor, uh, or the, the, the gene that regulates these 11 genes, are the current topic of research. So we recently, what, three, four months ago now, had a massive paper published on this regulator, um, which we call PER-R, or the repressor of purine biosynthesis. Um, so PER-R, like, yeah. like a cat, PER-R. Yeah. Okay. Uh, funny story, when I was writing that paper, my computer autocorrected PER-R with a capital R to PER, like a cat, <sighs> every single time. <laughs> <laughs> you had to go back and replace yep. like every single one in every the paper. Every time. It was delightful. I love cats, but um, <laughs> just not quite that much. Um, uh, but yeah, so we had this massive paper published uh, on uh, PAR-R, which was the first study actually on PAR-R. Um, and we were able to directly link um, the regulation of the synthesis of these DNA components to how staph causes disease, which was uh, very interesting to us because we weren't expecting to see that. Definitely. Well, congratulations Thank to you. start with. That's very exciting. So these uh, regulators you're talking about, they are modulators of the gene expression themselves. So I guess this would fall under the category of epigenetics. Would that be true? or um, Epigenetics work? in bacteria is um, a little bit up in the air. Okay. So it's a little bit simpler in bacteria, actually. So yes, you're right. They do regulate gene expression. Uh, epigenetics is for the more complicated things like... Uh, you know, humans and big things. Sure. Uh, bacteria are very much on the simpler end. So Not they on will... a single cell level. Yes, very much on the single cell level, but also they, they do things a lot easier as well. So your regulator will sense, oh, we have enough things to make DNA or we don't. Therefore, I either need to switch these genes on or off. Um, so it's very much a direct interaction. Your regulator will interact with your genes and you will either allow them to be made or not. So uh, actually our lives are easier than majority of our colleagues who work with um, eukaryotic cells and have to worry about epigenetics. Sure, with the, I guess, the RNA transcription, and th that's a whole separate process that differentiates, I guess, the prokaryotes would yep. be the, okay, bacteria yes. versus us humans and all others, multicellular beings, the eukaryotes? Yep. Yes. Awesome, okay. How did you get interested in this? So I, so my undergrad is in uh, infectious disease research uh, or microbiology. It's essentially exactly the same thing, really. <laughs> um, so I originally started my undergraduate degree in uh, biology and the system that I come from is a little bit different. So you start with general biology and then you decide what to specialize in in your third and fourth year. Um, and I had a lot of classes that were just really interesting. And, you know, the microbiology was always fascinating. Um, so I picked a few of those and then I went and did a summer project um, after my third year um, in a microbiology lab and I, I was sold. Um, I eventually went back to that lab to do my PhD. Wow. So. And I, this is mostly involved, I, I suppose, cell culture work when, when, we, when we speak of the uh, bacterial um, replication and all of like analyzing how they're eating or what the food they're eating is and yeah so we do we do a lot of what we call bacteriology so you we know actually the simplest way of putting it is we put bacteria in 
differently colored liquids and see how they grow because <laughs> 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 majority of our media comes in different colors um <laughs> so it really is actually just let's put some bacteria in different tubes um which is our standard you know bacteriology assessments we do a lot of tissue culture as well so this is when we introduce bacteria to eukaryotic cells in an attempt to model what happens during an actual um infection um, and we actually have currently have a line of research looking exactly into that and how these poor R mutants um, interact with individual eukaryotic cells and hmm. what goes on inside um, um, as such. So we, we do quite a bit of both. Actually, my uh, lab or I suppose my boss's lab um, <laughs> does a lot of um, really interesting um, tissue culture that they've been publishing for quite a while now with a lot of very um, fancy microscopy. It must be very useful to have both ends of the spectrum, I guess, the, the, the bacterial level or I guess the cell culture level and also the uh, tissue culture level to really be able to uh, bridge that gap between, I guess, molecules and, and living organisms or behavior. Uh, yes. I mean, I think at this point in time, it's actually essential because what we what we do in the lab is artificial. So, you know, we put <laughs> bacteria in things that we know they like. Um, in an environment where they have all the nutrients in the world, it's nice temperature, they love it, it's great, it's essentially you're on holiday all day long, um, <laughs> and it's fantastic, uh, but that is not really what happens uh, in, in the real, real world, okay. uh, in a real infection, or even when they are colonizing humans without causing disease, it's just not how it looks. Because so, resources are scarce in, yep. in yeah, okay. Yeah, you're missing um, you're missing a lot of resources. There is an immune system trying to kick you out. Um, <laughs> there are probably other bacteria you're competing with, and there's there's a lot of other things that will influence how these bacteria behave. So, we as you know, as scientists, are now moving on a little bit more towards um, realistic models. And I mean, they're still not realistic. They're still models. So there's still a model system. There's still something that it's relatively easy to work with but they at least start to answer some of the questions of what goes on in the more realistic environments mm -hmm. versus what you know what we do in the lab which is predominantly designed to make our lives easier right other than the giant paper that you guys published yeah. last year is there anything that's come about from this research or anything that you found thus far that's of interest to you of interest to me in general uh, the whole thing. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> the whole thing. So, um, I mean, so I've been on this project for about a year and a half now, maybe a bit more than that. Um, the project had started before I moved here, um, but I currently have three, maybe four separate uh, offshoots that I'm working on, which I'm hoping will eventually become four manuscripts, or at least three. We'll go with three. The dream for everyone, the dream. right? <laughs> uh, but it's uh, it's very interesting for us because this is very much the start. So nobody's really worked with this um, regulator before, and it appears to regulate a lot of things that we didn't know it did. Um, so realistically, there is a massive amount of things to look into, uh, which will probably take decades. So there's been similar regulators in staff that people still work on despite the fact they were discovered you know 40 years ago so um it's it's opened a, a massive can of worms in a very good way and uh, there's a lot of things we didn't know were regulated by poor r we knew they were regulated by other things but it's starting to become very much a hierarchy and a network which um which is very very interesting because then mm. it becomes well, a lot more complicated, um, <laughs> so but also a lot more um, 
realistic because you're answering a lot of the bacteria are answering a lot of the cues from their environment um, and responding to said cues which in a way is starting to answer how they can do so many different things with the same set of genes so this per r gene mm -hmm. it is a part of the dna of all bacteria is that what you mentioned it's uh, it's ubiquitous across all species of, of the bacteria uh Certainly of Staph aureus, okay, yes. Okay. Um, there are what we call homologs. Um, so there are genes in other bacteria that do exactly the same thing. Okay. They'll be very slightly different um, or quite different, depending on how separated the different bacteria are. But they will serve the same function. Majority of bacterial species, um, I can't give you a number, but majority <laughs> of them will need to synthesize their own DNA. Therefore, they will have something similar to PAR-R sure. or it's something that does the same function at least. Now, just backtracking a little bit earlier uh, in the interview, you mentioned that um, most of these, I guess, the, the antibiotics or variants of them that are being developed, the, mm -hmm. the scientists or I guess people who are developing them, they want them to be useful across many species that they're not specific. They could be used against many different bacteria. Mm -hmm. um, with the PAR-R, um, scope of it that you're looking at would that be specific to staph staphylococcus aureus or or would it potentially be something that can be used against other types of bacteria even though the the genetic or the dna is slightly different tweaked like, like you said um that's a great question actually um i think it, depending on how specific the compound is you could potentially do something that targets multiple species um for okay. sure uh, you wouldn't be able to target all of them uh, because sure. there will be large differences between specific groups. Um, but you will be able to target quite a few, yes. Okay. Now, I'm just I'm just curious because I think, uh, well, I think we've all heard the antibiotics being used um, c can lead to this resistance with the antibiotics and actually, well, aside from that, actually start to kill off some of the good bacteria mm -hmm. in our bodies. So I'm just curious if attacking the PER-R gene like, like you're doing in, in your professor's lab uh, would potentially kill off a lot of these good bacteria that we also have that, that might also be fighting off or helping to fight off the staph uh, bacteria too. Um, yeah, so that's an excellent point. Um, I mean, at the moment, the PAR-R treatment is a pipe dream. Uh, sure. I mean, we haven't started, um, let alone gotten that far. Mm. But in a way, yeah, probably. I mean, antibiotics are a good and an evil at the same time. They're fantastic at fighting infections. They come with a lot of side effects. Um, so there probably will be side effects. There pretty much always is, um, unless you design something that specifically targets Staph aureus. Yeah. The problem with that is you are assuming that uh, when you do have an infection and you are in the hospital, someone will actually go to the trouble of identifying the bacteria you have, oh. which uh, isn't always the case um, because very frequently if somebody is really sick, the doctors will prescribe what we call a broad spectrum antibiotic, something that will target everything in an attempt to make them better mm -hmm. whilst they're waiting for the results to tell them what it is. Interesting. Um, because when you know, when you're very, very seriously ill, that is what you need to do because by the time the results have come back, your patient is dead. Uh, which is obviously something that nobody wants. Mm -hmm. Um so I think the other part of science that needs to 
develop quite a lot is um, the identification part. And I mean, we're really good at identifying bacteria. It just takes a very long time. Um, mm. In terms of a hospital stay, it will probably take a day, maybe two, which if you're in the ICU is a very, very long amount of time. Sure. So yes, maybe we can target something specifically to Staph aureus. Um, that is a plus and a minus. It's, I mean, that's true for any drug, right? Everything Absolutely. has a great, uh, great effect, but also some side effects. And then I guess how, how to, I guess the drug company that goes about developing that drug specific for the staff, staff aureus, the next generation of uh, like the parents or, or the offspring of the parents, they have now adapted to get rid of that. So you've yeah. wasted tens of millions or, or, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on stage three clinical trials and everything yeah. else. So I can see, I guess, where the nuance comes in there with uh, cost benefit analysis and a bunch of other things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I actually think the current pipeline um, and I don't work in R&D, so please don't quote me on this. <laughs> but um, I read a study that um, essentially takes about 10 to 15 years to develop a new antibiotic. And in general life, it takes between two and four years for the bacteria to become resistant. So it's it's a race against the clock, really. Mm -hmm. And we're always losing, it seems. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> all the time. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's so stressful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I was wondering if we could backtrack and talk sure. about your transition from PhD to postdoc, if that was sure. okay. Absolutely. What made you want to get into a postdoc position? Um, I love research. Um, I wanted to teach. I still want to teach. Um, and... I wanted to see a different lab. Um, I mean, I, I like I said, I did my summer project and my PhD in the same lab, and I've been to a couple of different ones for small projects, but um, everyone kept telling me that I don't know what um, real research is about until I've been somewhere else. So like, you know, you have this one experience, and maybe it's great, and you think research is great, or maybe it's horrible, and you think research is horrible, hmm. but, you know, give it another try. Go somewhere else, see something different, and then make up your mind. Um, so I did. Uh, it's actually probably the best piece of advice that um, a friend of mine gave me. She was a postdoc at the time. Um, and her advice was, go try something else. And, um, you know, maybe you love it, maybe you hate it, but at least it will be an informed choice. Definitely. It seems um, like you did so in the most uh, expanding way that you possibly could. You went abroad, across the, the yep. world, and it must be a completely different experience. Or How do you find it? Um, I mean, it's been a great experience. It's uh, It's been difficult. It, I mean, it's a new country. You lose a lot of your support network. Um, oh. I think that's the part that people don't talk about the most. Interesting. Um, when moving. So, you know, everyone talks about um, culture shock and, you know, you're in a new place and it's a stressful job and so on and so forth. But your friends that you leave at home and your support network is probably the biggest um the biggest difficulty I had. Um, and even then, I didn't come alone. Um, so probably not as bad as some people. But at the same time, it's very exciting. I mean, it's a new country. It's a fantastic country. It's been a great experience. Um, so it's it's definitely an opportunity to go and do something different and see a different culture. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe you decide to stay there. Maybe you decide to go back. But at least you've gone and tried uh, <laughs> and seen what it's like elsewhere. Definitely. So you like Canada. I love Canada. Okay. It's great. <laughs> Good to know. Um, with that, did you always, were you always told that you had to do a postdoc when you were finishing up your PhD? Like what drove you to do a postdoc instead of applying for teaching positions or applying for maybe something in the private sector? Um, I kind of did both. 
really um so i wasn't really sure what i wanted to do at the end of my phd um i i had a great experience during my phd but i had my fair share of problems just like any other grad student out there um so i was a little bit perhaps a little bit resentful um at a stage where i was like well you know maybe i don't want this maybe i do want this i don't know i applied for some industry jobs um didn't get in there um and i was chatting to my friend the same friend at the time and she was like you know go try see what happens so i started applying for postdocs as well um and got a couple of interviews and then got a little bit more excited of like oh look people are actually like you know willing to at least talk to me if not hire me um so no i don't i was never told that i absolutely have to do a postdoc but i knew that if i wanted to stay in academia i would have to do a postdoc so at, at the end um it was a you know it's, it's a couple of years it's three-year contract so if you hate it you have an out um if you love it you just keep going wow what, a, what an amazing opportunity, and it looks like you're taking full advantage of it. Uh, backtracking a little bit earlier again, Monica mentioned that you, in your lab, I guess, had a huge paper published recently. Yep. Um, if you want to give it a little bit more publicity, would you like to speak a little bit to, like, just, I guess, we're almost running out of time, but just wh where would somebody go to get more information on that if, if they were interested? Uh, if they're interested, if they go on our lab website, so that's uh, Dr. David Heinrichs, uh, at Microbiology and Immunology, we have a list of all of our publications. Uh, it's currently, I think, um, the most recent paper for 2019. Um, so they'll be able to find it. Very, very cool. Well, everyone go look that up. And, and do you mind uh, which which journal was it published in? Uh, it was published in a journal called Nature Communications. Wow. Um, which, I mean, probably not for every field, but certainly for our field, it's, it's a big journal. It's a fairly high-ranked journal, that's yeah. the, from what I understand anyways. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your insights, Maria. Maria Gonchev, it was, it was extremely useful. Thank you so much. Um, my name, again, is Roger Hudson. I'm Monica Molinaro. And our producer on the mic today was Gavin Tolometti. And uh, you've just joined us on GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. If you'd like to check out some of our old podcasts, you can check us out at gradcast.ca. If you'd like to get involved with the show at all, you can uh, find us and uh, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. And uh, you can catch us every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on CHRW 94.9 FM here in London, Ontario. Uh, thank you very much and have a wonderful week. The GradCast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.